coming from 2 Kings chapter 13, and this will be uh, the conclusion of our series on Elijah and Elisha. Uh, We hear the story in this passage of Elisha's death, which is what we're going to focus on, but I'm going to read the whole passage just so we have context. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen, and ten chariots, and ten thousand footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them, and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, and all that he did, and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash king of Judah, Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. 
Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open this passage to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what you're saying to us in it and help us to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the legend of William Tell? William Tell was a man who lived in what's today Switzerland in the canton of Uri. And during his time, the evil Habsburgs were trying to take control of these little Swiss cantons. And this guy named Gessler, who was the boss the Habsburgs had put in charge of his village, hung his hat on a pole and made all of the villagers bow down to the hat every time they came into town. Well, one day William Tell was coming into town and he had his son in tow but he refused to bow to the hat. Infuriated, Gessler had him and his son captured and threatened to execute both of them. But because he liked to play sort of perverse little games, he said, I'll tell you what, you and your son can go free if you can shoot an apple on your son's head. So he stood his son over there and he put the apple on his head and William Tell got his crossbow and aimed as carefully as he could, and shot the bolt right through the apple. As it turns out, this sparked a series of events that led to the formation of the Swiss Confederation. So not only was his son's life at stake, but unbeknownst to him, the entire history of Switzerland. I'll leave it to you to read the rest of the story online. But let me ask you, what would have happened if William Tell had phoned it in? If he hadn't tried very hard? Well, that's kind of what we see in our story today. Somebody who tried a little less hard than William Tell. Uh, we're here at the end of the story of Elisha, the end of our series with his death. Uh, and just a little context for where we're headed, um, because I think it's kind of important to get the whole shape in the book of Kings. In a few, only a few chapters, we're going to have the end of the entire northern kingdom of Israel, at least as a political entity. The Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to uh, destroy the kingdom, the city of Samaria, and they're going to exile the people. We're about maybe a hundred years on the clock from the very ends. That's where we're located in the history of Israel's story, and then only the kingdom of Judah will be left as a political entity. Um, and so as we look at this passage, we should have that in, in, in our minds. You know, wh where are we headed from here? And it, it doesn't look very good. I'm going to ask two big questions and have two points in this sermon. First, who is Joash? What do we learn about who this king really is in this passage? And secondly, who is God? 
What do we learn about who God is? So who is Joash and who is God? Let's start with who is Joash. Now we are jumping forward several chapters since our last sermon on 2 Kings 9 because there wasn't much with Elisha in those chapters. But let me give you the recap. Actually, we covered all of the intrigues and coups on our podcast, The Fourth Point. So go ahead and tune into that if you want the blow-by-blow. But here's the brief summary of events. Uh, Just as Elisha had anointed Hazael in Aram or Syria, we heard about that last week, uh, he then goes and he anoints an Israelite army commander named Jehu. And then Jehu goes and he slaughters the entire house of Ahab and all the prophets of Baal. And, And all of this fulfills the prophecies that God had made against the house of Ahab through Elijah. So we have this big regime change heading into our chapter. Uh, And there's come this return to worshiping the Lord instead of worshiping Baal. And that's good. But at the same time, Jehu has still continued the idolatrous practices of worshiping calf statues at Bethel and Dan. And that's bad. We have this mixed result with Jehu. Yes, we're worshiping the right God now, but we're still worshiping him in the wrong way. We're worshiping the Lord, but we're thinking of him like a calf. And because of this unfaithfulness, God has raised up Hazael, the Aramean king, uh, to lead his troops in victory over Israel. And actually, it's gone very badly. By this point, Hazael has conquered all of the territory Israel held east of the Jordan, taken all of that. In our chapter, we have records of the reigns of Jehu's son and grandson. They're Jehoahaz, Jehu's son, and then Joash, his grandson. And much like Jehu, they worship the Lord. They're not worshiping Baal, but they do so according to this idolatrous calf system. And so while God does sometimes grant them relief from the Aramaeans, on the whole, they have the worst of the war. The army is reduced to small numbers, hardly any chariots, and the oppression of Haziel is a continual danger. Uh, So it's this King Joash who's going to be interacting with Elisha in the story that we have before us today. And and by the way, uh, like many biblical kings, there's actually two versions of his name. Sometimes he's Joash, sometimes he's Jehoash, just two variants of the same name. And because that's not confusing enough, The king ruling in Judah has the same name. He's also called Joash. I guess it was a popular baby name at the time or something. Um, So just don't get them confused. Uh, Jehoash of Judah and then Jehoash of Israel, the northern kingdom, that's our Jehoash for this story. So our story starts with Elisha falling sick and being brought to death's door. Though he'd healed so many people before, now it's his time. And King Joash goes to visit him. And maybe you're a little surprised, given that the narrator has just told us that Joash is the king that does evil in the eyes of the Lord, that it seems like he has a relationship with the man of God. I mean, he calls Elisha my father and greets him that way. Uh, And actually, Joash reacts to Elisha's imminent death in kind of the same way Elisha had reacted to Elijah's departure earlier. He says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Does this mean that Joash is Elisha's disciple? 
Does this mean that Joash could even be Elisha's successor? You know, the, uh, we've had Elijah, Elisha, now Joash. Well, hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. But I think that's a question we're supposed to ask. Anyway, it makes sense that he's upset. Uh, what are the, what's this deal with the chariots and the horsemen of Israel? Well, we've seen them throughout the story. The, these are the divine army, the heavenly hosts. And we've also seen that these heavenly chariots center on the person of Elisha, that he's the one through whom the power of God has come and has delivered Israel from the Aramean forces more than once. But what's going to happen now that Elisha is dying? Is this firepower going to be lost? Well, the man of God directs the king to perform a sign. In the Old Testament, you know, prophets didn't just always bring the words of God. Sometimes they did these signs, like they maybe wore a yoke or uh, dug through a wall, sort of visual aids, if you will. Uh, And the sign Elisha gives here, it seems designed to reassure the king about God's continued help in warfare. Uh, This this bow is actually a chariot kind of weapon. Stereotypically, we see people like Jehu riding around in chariots, and what do they have? They have a bow and arrow. And actually, the connection is made more close in the Hebrew, where draw the bow, that's what our translation says, is literally make your hand ride the bow, the same word you use for riding a chariot. What all this means is that the sign seems to be a picture of Elisha's divine chariot power. And so the arrow is actually even aimed out to the east. Remember, that's the Arameans had conquered the entire east, and this is their route of attack into Israel. So the sign seems to be saying that it represents, the arrow represents divine help in the war against Hazael. Then we have Elisha placing his hands over Joash's hands. And this symbolizes him giving the king his power. Elisha gives the orders and the king obeys. King and prophet are working literally hand in hand. Is this what we've finally been waiting for, the whole Elijah-Elisha story? Finally, king and prophet are going to be in sync. Well, uh, the first arrow is shot. And what does Elisha say? The arrow of salvation belongs to the Lord. And the arrow of salvation against Aram. And you will strike Aram and Aphek to the end. We know that people practice various arrow rituals in the ancient Near East, by the way. I spent some time on it this week. We don't really understand them as well as we'd like to, unfortunately. Um, But sometimes we find arrows inscribed with the arrow of X on the arrowhead itself. Uh, And it seems to me that the purpose of this first part of the ritual is to establish what the arrows signify. In a sense, we could say that the arrow means that we're trusting in God's power, right? Salvation belongs in the Lord uh, to bring a victory against Aram that's going to be final and decisive. So that's what the arrow means, trusting in God's power to bring a victory against Aram that's final. Just as an analogy, it's a little bit how, like, uh, when we do the Lord's Supper in a moment, I'm going to say a few words explaining what the bread and the wine mean. And we do that every Sunday so you understand what this sign stands for. I think Elisha's helping Joash know what does this arrow stand for. 
The next part of the ritual involves Joash taking a bunch of arrows and striking the ground. And it's a little unclear what this means. Uh, it, could just, it could mean that he's supposed to shoot these arrows out the window as well, or maybe he's just supposed to, supposed to sort of throw them on the ground. Um, like I said, we don't totally understand this ritual. But in any case, this is where disaster strikes. Joash strikes the ground three times, and then he stops. The fact that that verb is there explicitly in the text, and he stopped, probably means to say that this is sort of a conscious choice, a significant choice on his part. And I think maybe it's a little confusing for us because of our cultural distance. I think a lot of the commentators just imagine Jehu grabbing a bundle of arrows and whacking the ground. And, and then in which case, how does he know how many times he's supposed to do it? Uh, but it seems more likely to me that this is something he does with the arrows one at a time. And in that case, it's clear what it would mean for him to stop. It means he doesn't shoot all the arrows. In fact, the old Greek even interprets it this way. It says, you know, Elisha gives him five arrows and he shoots three. In other words, Joash has more arrows left he could shoot, but he chooses not to. He doesn't shoot his shot. Well, why did he stop? Was he lazy? Did he get bored? Or what? I mean, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, so let's come back to that and think about that later. But first, let's see the results. Elisha gets angry at him. He's botched the ritual. If he'd struck five or six times, he would have received the full victory foreshadowed in the words spoken over the first arrow. But now he's only going to defeat Aram three times. Only a partial victory, not a decisive one. Let's step back a moment. Does all this ritual stuff seem a little weird to you? Does it seem sort of like magical and maybe even irrational that success in warfare would be connected to how many times you strike the arrows? I mean, we live in a very de-ritualized culture today. And even the rituals that we take part in, we tend to think of as like just symbols. They don't actually do anything. So we need to put ourselves a little bit in the mindset of the ancient Israelites to get this. There's actually a lot of evidence that if you, say, lived in Egypt, or if you lived in Babylon, that you thought the rituals the king performed in the temple literally maintained political, economic, and even environmental stability. The king brought the favor of the gods and helped keep cosmic forces in balance. Uh, when Persian king Cyrus takes over Babylon, he puts out propaganda that says, you know, the guy before me, the previous king, he messed up the rituals in the temple, and that made the gods angry, and that's why they made me the king. So this was a big deal. Uh, imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite and hear that the king messed up a ritual specifically designed for success in warfare. I think you'd be pretty angry. Now, Israel's understanding of rituals, it wasn't quite the same as their neighbors. Yahweh didn't need human help. He couldn't be manipulated by rituals in the same way. But I think sometimes we go too far in the other direction and see these as just purely symbolic. And you know, we think of prophecy maybe as a sort of heavenly information dump that just gives us a lot of facts about the future. Uh, and uh, we think of these, you know, synax as maybe just visual aids, but... If you, there's lots of evidence in the Bible that people believe that God really works through these words and sign acts. 
to accomplish and fulfill his will. They're designed to sort of elicit human participation. Uh, one example is the scripture reading we heard with Isaiah and Ahaz, right? Isaiah meets Ahaz and he's preparing for war, fortifying the water sources, and he tells him to ask for a sign. Why? Why can't Isaiah just give him the sign? Why does he have to ask? It's because God is inviting Ahaz to participate in his work. He's asking him to step out in faith, to take a break from fortifying the city and making alliances and all the human things he's trying to do to save himself and actively trust in God's promises. But what does Ahaz do? He says no. He even uses this sort of like uh, pseudo-theological excuse, I don't want to test the Lord, right? But what's really going on? He's just keeping God at arm's length. He doesn't really trust him. That's what Isaiah points to. He says, this is the problem of faith, believing in God. If Ahaz doesn't stand by faith, he's not going to stand at all. Which brings us back to the question, what is Joash's problem? Why does Joash stop? Well, the passage doesn't make it explicitly clear, but I think if we put Joash together with his dad and with his granddad, we see some family patterns. Jehu wipes out the worship of Baal, but he continues the idolatrous practices of Jeroboam. Chapter 1031 says that he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. Jehoahaz, his son, cries out to God in the midst of trouble, but 13.6 says that he and Israel don't actually repent of their sins. The pattern here seems to be that the house of Jehu is very publicly pro-Yahweh, but then when you look at their lives, you don't actually see that panning out in obedience. They're team Yahweh, and they're willing to attack anybody who's not on the team, but their whole heart isn't really in it. We could actually go a little farther and notice that their public devotion to Yahweh is actually very politically advantageous to them as kings. And Jehu's always quoting the prophecies of judgment that justify his regime change. Why? Because it works politically. Ahab's family was for Baal. I am for Yahweh. Therefore, I get to be king. Great. But he's still going to keep the centers of worship in Dan and Bethel because it's politically convenient. He can control them. That's why Jeroboam set them up in the first place. He didn't want people going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Against this background, I think we can view Joash's professed devotion for Elisha with a little skepticism. You know, when he mentions the chariots and the horsemen, is this a sincere profession of faith? Or is Joash saying that um, he's a good disciple of Elisha? Maybe even portraying himself as Elisha's successor. Does he want to co-opt the religious popularity of Elisha and the Sons of the Prophets movement. You know, is he showing up at Elisha's sickbed kind of like a politician coming to church around election season? He's going to sing the hymns and shake the preacher's hands, but it's not really sincere. That would be my guess, that his, heart, his whole heart is not really in it, kind of like Grandpa Jehu. 
And here's the thing about rituals in the Old Testament. They don't just work automatically. You can't fool or manipulate God. You can't just go to the temple and go through the motions and then go outside and oppress the poor and expect God not to care. And so the ritual here, it reveals the truth. It reveals Joash's heart. It reveals his half-heartedness and therefore withholds the full blessing that could come from complete faith in God. Okay. How should we apply it, this passage to ourselves this morning? Well, I think this passage calls us to active dependence on God. Active dependence on God. Well, what's that? It might seem like kind of a strange phrase. How can it be, if it's dependence, isn't it passive? Let me contrast it with a couple things that it's not. First, there's active self-dependence. That's when I'm doing a lot of activity, but I'm really trying to marshal all of my own powers and my own abilities to solve my problem without seeking God's help. I'm getting up in my own chariot and going off to solve my problems. But on the other hand, there's a sort of lazy dependence on God. This is where we say very pious-sounding things, like, God is sovereign, or God is good, but it doesn't really impact our hearts. I think this is something we as Presbyterians might be especially vulnerable to. When we pray, do we really think God can do the things that we are asking? When we come to church, do we really expect that God is going to meet us here? How would it change us if we really believed that God was calling us to participate in his work, to actively trust in him. You know, the house of Jehu, they're not the straightforward bad guys we meet with Ahab. They're kind of mixed. And in some ways, that makes them really challenging to me. Because when I look at Ahab, I can say, well, you know, I'm at least not publicly sold out to Baal. I am for Jesus. All well and good. But am I more enthusiastic than Joash? Is it more real for me than for him? I hope so. I hope so. But I also know that there are temptations and desires in my heart that distort how I see God. I know that sometimes my trust in God is weak and my motivation to obey just isn't there. Perhaps in this passage, the Spirit is calling us back to enthusiastic, wholehearted trust in God's promises. Okay, so that's our first point. Who is Joash? Second point, who is God? After the story of Elisha's death, we have this brief little story, which is also a remarkable miracle. Elisha dies and is buried. Some time passes. This is kind of gross, but in ancient Israel, when somebody dies, you kind of lay them out in a cave, and you wait for them to decompose naturally until they're just bones, And you take their bones and you put them in a box and you file them away. And I think this is where we're supposed to be in the story. Elisha's laid out in a cave and he's just about at the point where he's reduced to bones, ready to be filed away with all the rest of the relatives. Then there are these Moabite raids going on. We didn't cover this in our series, but in chapter 3, Mesha, king of Moab, rebelled against Israel. And Ahab wasn't able to bring him back into submission. 
We actually have an inscription of Mesha about this, by the way, a little bit of extra biblical uh, information about what's happening in the Bible. So as, as if it wasn't bad enough to have the Arameans in the northeast, now we have the Moabites in the southeast also raiding into Israel. And let me tell you, that's a lot worse than a black bear rampaging around your neighborhoods. Think of the black bear, but much worse if it's a Moabite raid. You don't want that. That's why your kids are trying to walk to school. And so there's this funeral procession, right? And they're, they're, they're taking this dead body to be buried, but then this band of raiders come, and in a panic, they just toss it into whatever, you know, the, ca the cave that Elisha is in. But as they dump this guy in the cave, his body touches Elisha's bones, and he comes back to life. You know, of all the resurrections in the Elijah and Elisha story, and I think I count three, this is the third one, this is maybe the most impressive. To resurrect somebody after you yourself have actually died. I mean, in, in the other resurrection story, it seems like hard work. <laughs> They're bending themselves over the body and like multiple times, but here it just touches his bones and comes back to life. Normally a dead body is just a source of Ritual impurity and disease, but here it's a source of life. But what's more important, I think, is what this miracle means. It means that the spirit of Elijah, which he passed on to Elisha, that spirit is still with Israel. I want to ask you to put your, sand, your, your feet in the sandals of a faithful Israelite at this time, maybe even one of the sons of the prophets. Things look grim. We've been through the idolatry and injustice of the house of Ahab. Then we've had this bloody coup. The Arameans have invaded and taken swaths of territory. The Moabites are raiding. The house of Jehu has had only limited military success. There's no big triumph over Aram coming, just a limited counteroffensive. And now Elisha's leaving. He has no clear successor to carry on the work. The king's only nominally committed to Yahweh and he's happy to compromise with idolatry for political gain. Is this it? Is God just done with Israel? With the death of Elijah, are all the angels just going to pack up their chariots and go home? This miracle shows that that's not the case. Even though Elisha is dead, the power of God that was unleashed through him and Elijah is still at work. Even without a king, and without a prophet, God can continue to be present with his people. The theology of this is underscored in the following verses. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor as he cast them from his presence until now. This verse underscores the ultimate reason for God's deliverance of Israel. It's not because Jehoahaz was so great. Certainly not because Joash was so great. It's not even because Elisha was so great. It's simply because of God's grace and compassion to them. And because he'd made a covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the end of the day, the reason that God is good to us simply is because he wants to. And because he has chosen to do so. Furthermore, the verse says that God would not destroy them, or more literally, that he didn't want to destroy them. He didn't desire to. It 
tells us something about God's heart. Has echoes maybe of Ezekiel 33:11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God does not delight in judgment. As much as we affirm the scriptural truth that God does judge and that he's sovereign over whatever comes to pass, we have to also say that mysteriously there is some sense in which judgment is never something that God wants to happen. And it's the last clause of this verse is even more extraordinary. Nor has he cast them from his presence until now. This verse gave me a lot of trouble in my sermon preparation this week. It's the until now that raises the most questions. After all, just ahead in chapter 17, God's going to exile Israel, the whole northern kingdom, from the land, which could be interpreted as him casting them out of his presence. So what's the until now? Does the until now just mean until the time of Jehoahaz and Joash, God's compassion remains with them, but... A hundred years later, by chapter 17, it'll have run out, and that's it, and they are cast out? Well, it depends when the verse was written. <laughs> was it written perhaps after the exile of the northern kingdom? Is this something we can still say? If it was, then it would say that somehow, in some mysterious way, even after the exile of the north, God was still with them. It's a bit of a difficult question to answer. Um, these histories, they were written over a period of time by multiple inspired authors. The Holy Spirit revealed them progressively through multiple writers. Just as an example, if you turn to 1 Kings 8.8, 8, it says that the ark was in the temple until this day. But the whole book is written by somebody who lived after the destruction of the temple. So that must have been written by somebody else. And he incorporated the work of the people who came before him into what he did. So maybe that's what's going on here. Um, that this was something that was written earlier and just incorporated by the final author. But there's another weird thing about verse 23, which is that in other manuscripts, it's in a different place. We don't often talk about other manuscripts, but sometimes it makes a big difference. Um, in some manuscripts, this same verse is found instead of here at the end of verse 7. Um, and either way, it's about the reign of Jehoahaz, but it brings out different nuances of the verse if we look at it in different places. If we put it after verse 7, then it seems like it's answering a particular question, which is, why does God deliver Jehoahaz when Jehoahaz doesn't repent? You've got to admit that's kind of weird, right? If you're familiar with, say, the book of Judges or other parts of the Bible, the pattern is supposed to be God's people sin. God brings a foreign oppressor uh, to punish them. They repent of their sin and cry out to the Lord, and God brings deliverance. But in the beginning of 13, it tells us specifically that they don't repent, and God delivers them anyway. And so this verse may have originally been saying, why did God do that? Not because they repented, but simply because of his compassion. Well, if that's the case, then why would it be in a different place? Well, 
While the first complete edition of Kings was finished after the exile, it probably was not the last edition. And so it seems plausible that an inspired editor who added the finishing touches to the book moved the verse. But why? Where am I going with this? Why move the verse? It's because, I think, of the two occurrences of the verb cast. See, this dead man was cast into the tomb, and God says he won't cast away Israel. And what would that connection mean? Well, death often represents exile, and resurrection represents God bringing his people back. You know the story of the dead bones in Ezekiel? Where are the dead bones of the people of Israel? And they say, we're dead. And God says, nope, I'm going to give you back to life, bring you back to life. I'm not done with you. So probably the person who moved the verse wanted to say, this is still true, even after exile. Even after 2 Kings 17, even after the northern tribes are exiled, God is not done with them. I think sometimes we have the wrong idea of the story of Israel and Judah. You know, we think that God just gave up on the northern kingdom with their exile and said, I'm just going to focus on the southern kingdom, Judah, instead. I'm done with them. But the biblical picture is actually more nuanced. The author of Chronicles tells us about people from the northern kingdom in the time of Hezekiah who come down and worship at the temple and celebrate the Passover. After all, how do you think we got the stories of Elijah and Elisha in the first place? If not, that people from the north, faithful Yahweh worshipers, brought them with them to the Bible that was being assembled in Jerusalem and probably brought the book of Hosea and Amos as well. This theme continues into the New Testament. Do you remember the woman in the temple when the baby Jesus is brought named Anna who's faithfully waiting? Bible trivia, what tribe is she from? Asher, one of the northern tribes. And I think this might be why Samaritans are so important in the gospel stories and in Acts. Right? The gospel goes to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You see, God has not given up on the north. It's still part of his plan. And that means that the story of Elijah and Elisha is ultimately a story of God's faithfulness to a people. Yes, it's a story of how that people fails and how their political structure and royal dynasties do not survive. But it's also a story of how God remains faithful to his covenant with Abraham's children. Because he promised to Abraham that he would be with his seed. And it was a covenant promise that even their idolatry and their unfaithfulness could not erase. So what does all that mean for us? Well, if this is the message of the bones of Elisha, how much more is it the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He's the ultimate prophet, the one who brings God close to us because he is God in human flesh. He's the perfect king who gives himself with a whole heart to accomplish God's purposes for our salvation. The king that they didn't have in Joash, we do have in Jesus. He's the ultimate expression of God's compassion and grace, a compassion and grace that stick with us even despite our failures. And in his resurrection, Jesus is even greater than Elisha, isn't he? Elisha brings one man back to life, but can't bring himself back to life. But Jesus, being raised from the dead, brings a whole host 
of people back to life. Through him, we have life. And as we learned in our Ephesians series this year, as Jesus sits enthroned at the Father's right hand, he's present with us by the Spirit he's sent. And he's with us always. We don't need to fear being abandoned. Jesus is the one who finally fulfills that covenant promise to Abraham. And now we have God's unconditional love in Jesus because Jesus has fulfilled those conditions of the covenant himself. And you know, that's a great comfort for me when I fail. It's a great comfort for me when I see others fail and I'm called to respond to them in mercy. And for all of us, when we see the church fail, which what is the Elisha and Elijah story if not the story of God's people failing but God remaining faithful? Our ultimate guarantee of God's presence with us is God's compassion and mercy shown in Christ, a compassion and mercy that stick with his people to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done in Jesus. We thank you that despite even his own disciples abandoning him, despite him being executed by the religious leaders, the complete failure and breakdown of the people who are supposed to be following you, nevertheless, Jesus is a source of life and victory to us. We pray that you would press that reality deeply into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.